Welcome to this podcast from Riverside Church Whitstable. We hope you find it helpful and encouraging. If you would like to find out more information about us, why not check out our website at riversideuk.org, our Facebook page, or follow us on Twitter at Whit Riverside. We are having such a good time with you all here. We, um, we so love this church. It's a fantastic church. So thank you guys so much for inviting us to be with you. I enjoyed last week and I especially enjoyed the Q&A session Sunday evening. Who was there in the evening? Fantastic. If, if you can come tonight, that would be brilliant. Because we'll take questions on anything at all uh, on this subject or anything about the Bible. And uh, Lynn will do the difficult questions, I'll do the easy questions. Um, but you can come back to us if you're here in person and you know, ask us questions and say, but what about this and what about that? Because it's so much easier to have conversation, isn't it, than just as, like a monologue from me. There's only so much I can guess what you'd like us to talk about. I know that uh, Keely mentioned to me earlier that one or two people have got some more questions about the authority of Scripture on this subject, and that is so crucial. Our own Vineyard Statement of Faith talks about the supreme authority of Scripture for our lives, and just about every evangelical statement of faith says something very similar. So that's so central to everything that we're talking about in this series. Okay, so last week we started looking at the five Bible verses that are generally taken to be talking about homosexuality. And I explained why we can't just pull five verses out of their contexts and call that what the Bible says on a subject. And especially not to say that that is what the Bible clearly teaches. I mean, to start with, we need to know what those verses meant by what they said. We need to know what exactly they were talking about and why. Only when we know what they were saying then can we ask ourselves how that relates to now. And of course, it may be the same answer to the same question, but equally, it may not be. So we we saw an example of that last week, didn't we, in 1 Corinthians 14, about women keeping quiet in church. We could also have looked at 1 Peter 2. You who are slaves must submit to your masters. See if we can see this together. There we go. You who are slaves must submit to your masters with all respect. Do what they tell you, not only if they are kind and reasonable, but even if they are cruel. For God is pleased when, conscious of his will, you patiently endure unjust treatment. Now I hope that none of us would think that we should be quoting this verse out of its context as what the Bible is saying timelessly to us about slavery in our world today. Now if something that we read in the Bible is time-bound because what it was saying to them is not something it's saying to us, that doesn't make it any the less the word of God. Because God didn't give us the Bible just to copy everything about life in the ancient world two or three thousand years ago. There are lots of timeless truths in the Bible. Of course there are. But all of them come to us in time-bound wrappers within a context 
reflecting the people, the culture, the social setting and the scientific understandings of their day. So distinguishing between the truths and the wrappers is not always easy. And that's why we all have to take an interest in something called hermeneutics, which is the technical word for biblical interpretation. Now you may say, well, I'm not a biblical scholar. And that's fine. Most of the time, none of us need to be. But some of the time, we do need to be just a little bit. Because for some subjects, the Bible says won't be enough. In fact, once we decouple a verse from its context, it can even end up misleading, which is how the Bible has come to be used oppressively over the centuries. Fortunately, though, the basics of that are much easier than you might think, starting with what was the context? What was it saying to its original audience? What was it talking about then and why? Because once we know that, we can make an informed decision as to whether what it said then is saying the same thing timelessly to us now. So last week, there were two very important takeaways that I'll just quickly remind us about. The first takeaway was that there was no word in any ancient language, including the biblical languages of Hebrew, Greek and Aramaic, nor in Latin for homosexual. It's a new word from the late 19th century. It's a scientific term created to define a person who is same-sex attracted by nature, rather than someone who is opposite-sex attracted by nature. Psychiatrists and psychologists in Germany came up with that word when the characteristic of same-sex attraction was identified as being the natural state of a percentage of the population. And this new awareness was a game-changer for society. Because until then, in the whole history of time, everyone had been assumed to be opposite-sex attracted by nature. Which means that what the biblical writers were condemning was not something that they didn't know about called homosexuality. They were condemning something they did know about, which was same-sex behaviour, by men who they thought should just behave themselves, keep their passions under control, and stick to women. The second takeaway from last week was that, almost without exception, the same-sex behaviour in the ancient world that the Bible strongly condemns was not same-sex relationships of the kind that we are talking about in our world today. The contexts in which people saw same-sex behaviour taking place were almost invariably abusive and non-consensual. Men with power taking advantage of people who had no power, like slaves and prostitutes and young boys. Being sexually abused was part of being a slave. In Greco-Roman society, older men would have so-called mentoring relationships with young boys, 
in which they would be free to sexually abuse them as part of the deal. That was called pederasty. We call it paedophilia. One of the main contexts in which people saw this kind of behaviour happening in the cities of the Roman Empire where the churches were that Paul was writing to were lustful and depraved dinner parties hosted in pagan temples called the Convivium. So those two things, those two features of the ancient world of the Bible, what they didn't know about sexual orientation and the context in which they saw same-sex behaviour taking place are really important for us in knowing and understanding what the biblical writers were saying and why they were saying it. Obviously, those biblical writers had no reason to even consider the possibility of same-sex relationships of the type that we know today. Because if everyone is opposite-sex attracted by nature, then any same-sex behaviour is obviously unnatural and unnecessary. So with all that in mind as the background, let's look more closely at our first two New Testament verses. And the first thing that we notice is that they both use the word homosexual in some modern translations like the NASB here, which is really very naughty when the human characteristic that that word is describing wasn't discovered until 1900 years after these letters were written. Now, you may think, well, I'm sure that those translators are just trying to keep it simple for us. But the consequences of keeping it simple are obvious, not just for gay people, but for ordinary Bible-believing Christians who see that as the word of God in their Bibles, as being what the Bible says. So, you may be wondering... What original word did Paul use? And what did that mean at the time? And the word, a bit of Greek here, the word is arsenokoites. And this is a compound word from arsen, meaning man, and koite, meaning bed. So the literal meaning would be man bed. Now, arsen has nothing to do with our modern slang word for bottoms or Arsenal Football Club, or their former manager. <laughs> and nor is coite related to coitus, the Latin word for intercourse, so don't read any of that into it. Now, compound words are difficult in any language, and especially an ancient language. For example, mankind is not talking about how considerate men are, as every woman here knows. A wide boy is not a young man with obesity issues, and bedrock has nothing to do with beds. Now, we do know that coite was also used in the sense of the marriage bed, and that it was a slang word for bedding someone. What we don't know is what or who, in relation to that marriage bed or bedding someone, Paul may have had in mind here. We don't even know whether Man was the subject or object, a man bedding or a man being bedded. 
or what kind of man in what kind of context. And the reason that we don't know that is because 1 Corinthians 6, 9 is the first appearance of this word in any ancient writing that we know of. There are no examples before Paul uses it here. Whether Paul made it up, we don't know. Although presumably Paul's audience would have known what he had in mind. Now in every language, we use words as signposts to point people to things. So the question is what this word was pointing people to at the time. And not least because there were other Greek words that Paul could have used to talk about same-sex behaviour. So best guess would be that it was some kind of euphemism or slang for some kind of sexual behaviour involving a man that people at the time would have thought was so inappropriate that it would obviously be included in a list of this kind. What we do know, of course, is that it was never translated as homosexuals until the 20th century, 1946, by the RSV, which other conservative versions like the ESV and the NASB then began to copy. Before then, if we look at the German translation of Martin Luther, the great Protestant reformer, he translated it as Narbenschande. Narben means boy, and Shanda means molester. So he clearly thought Paul was talking about pederasty. Another interesting one is the first English Bible, the Wycliffe Bible, which goes back to 1382. Wycliffe translated it, they that do lechery with men. Lechery is unrestrained, excessive indulgence of sexual desire rather like the out-of-control sexual behaviour at the convivium, those depraved dinner parties in pagan temples of the first century. So I wonder whether what you've seen so far makes a compelling case for traditionalists to be so against gay relationships in our world. Okay, but now as Monty Python used to say, for something completely different. Romans 1, 26 to 27. No dead parrots here, but maybe just a hint of the <laughs> Spanish Inquisition. Now, this is probably the most important text for traditionalists because they see this as the Bible's strongest condemnation of homosexuals. And you may know that Romans 1 also talks about God's wrath which they think is directed at homosexuals. So we're going to read it in the ESV because that is about as conservative as you can get, translations-wise. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonourable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. Okay, so we'll start by asking the same questions of these verses as we have of the others, starting with the context. 
And from what we've read, we can't tell the context, can we? For example, it begins with, for this reason. What reason would that be? It says God gave them up. But who are the them here? Men, for sure. But is that gay men? Probably not, because it talks about their women. And gay men don't have women to give up. Verse 26 here is the only verse in the whole Bible that could be interpreted as talking about female same-sex behaviour. But notice, if you would, that it doesn't actually say that. What it says is that these women have exchanged natural relations for relations that are contrary to nature. So we obviously need to know what Paul and his audience at the time would have thought was natural and what was unnatural, what was contrary to nature in sexual matters. In verse 27, we see these men that Paul is talking about in this passage giving up their natural relations with women, which means they must have had natural relations with women before that, because you can't give up what you never had. All of which suggests that Paul is talking here about the behaviour of heterosexual men, as we would now call them. So is Paul saying that they were giving up natural relations with women for unnatural relations with women, as well as them being consumed with passion for other men? Is it one thing here or two things? And then right at the end, what was that due penalty for their error? When the AIDS epidemic hit in the 1980s, many Christians were quick to say to its victims, see, that's God's judgment on you, serves you right. But you know, if that was the case, it's surprising that it was delayed for 2,000 years. What Paul would have been talking about is something called the disease of effemination. A widespread belief in the ancient world that if you had sex with another man, you could catch the dreadful disease of becoming like a woman. So who are the they here? Who are these men? So why don't we take a look at what else we know about them, the other characteristics that they have from the verses before and after 26 and 27. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. For although they knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. They were idol worshippers, in other words. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with 
all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless and ruthless. Although they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. So let me ask you, is all of this a good description of the homosexual people that you personally know? Are homosexuals obviously the they that Paul is describing here? In fact, don't you think that it sounds a bit over the top as a description of anyone you know? Even a Calvinist with their doctrine of unlimited depravity might struggle to say that Paul is talking here about the whole human race. So who or what might this call to mind? It would have to be pretty bad, wouldn't it? People like Hitler, the SS, Stalin, Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge. Or maybe a regime just like that. A regime that Paul and his audience for the Book of Romans, hearing these things said, read out loud to them in Rome, would have been more than familiar with. The Caesars the imperial court, the governing elite of the Roman Empire. This passage describes exactly what we know about Nero, who was Caesar when Paul wrote Romans, and Caligula before him, who is even worse than Nero. He had a statue of himself put up in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, which is food for thought, maybe, in relation to Verses 23 and 25. Nero was a monster of unbelievable depravity. Let me just give you a few highlights. He took Christians and dressed them in animal skins and fed them to wild dogs. He burned them alive on the bonfires that provided the light for his garden parties. He abused young boys. He seduced married women and raped virgins. He castrated a boy to try to make a woman out of him, and then married him in an elaborate ceremony, and he kissed him frequently in public. He often had sex with his own mother in his carriage, and he invented a game in which, covered with the skin of a wild animal, he was then let loose from a cage and attacked the private parts of men and women tied to stakes. If Nero and the Roman Empire is what Paul had in mind in Romans 1, and if he did, he'd have to be very careful about saying so, there's no reason to think that Paul was intending to say anything that he thought was timelessly true of homosexual people today. So finally, let's, let's come back to 26 and 27. Now, I want you to see here 
the references to natural versus unnatural and to excessive and inappropriate passions. Because all of Paul's thinking, along with the ancient world, was framed by what they saw as natural in sexual relations versus what's not natural. Now, in our world today, Christians would generally say that anything sexual that happens in a heterosexual marriage is okay, provided it's consensual. But anything outside of heterosexual marriage is, by definition, not okay. Now, anyone who's ever read a Christian marriage book knows that. And, of course, you can show as much passion and desire as you like. In fact, it's a good thing. But that is not how Paul would have seen things. All of the writers from that period, Jewish and non-Jewish, including the early church fathers, all believed that the only natural sex, even within marriage, was for conceiving children. Everything else was unnatural. A man who has sex for pleasure, even with his wife, makes her metaphorically a prostitute. You should engage in marriage and sex only for the procreation of children. Any man who has sex with his wife for the purpose of pleasure adulterates his marriage. Even sex within marriage was wrong if it was driven by too much desire. Too much passion was a very bad thing. A man should not have sex with his wife if she was pregnant or on the Sabbath. Deuteronomy 14.7 was about rabbits being unclean. But it was interpreted as forbidding having sex too often. Think about that one. They said the wife must never take the initiative. She belongs on the bottom because she's subordinate to her husband. A man must never ejaculate in any part of her body except the vagina and then only for procreation. Which means that all other ways of having sex were forbidden, even within marriage, as unnatural and against nature. Because men should not outrage their wives by shameful ways of intercourse. And sex with a woman who was unable to conceive was condemned because that would mean wasting the male seed. Pretty bad luck for older couples. In the ancient world, they didn't know about female eggs. They thought that babies were just in the sperm. So wasting sperm was kind of like abortion. Pity those poor married women trying to suggest other ways of having sex to avoid getting pregnant and being told, no, sorry, that would be unnatural. So I wonder why the traditionalists don't insist that church pastors teach all these understandings of what's natural and unnatural in sexual matters alongside what they want us to say to homosexuals. Anyone care to hazard a guess? Simon and Keeley, I hope you're making notes on this for your next marriage course. (laughs) Good luck with that one. So all of that is painting a, a very different picture of what Paul would have had in mind when he talked about giving up natural relations and being consumed with passion and women exchanging natural relations 
for those that are contrary to nature. Okay, so let's uh, try and draw all of this together. So in the ancient world, a person who engaged in same-sex activities was believed to be leaving, giving up, or exchanging the natural, their natural, opposite-sex attraction for one that was unnatural to them. To which the classic response was, man up, pull yourself together, control yourself, and just have sex with women like everyone else. The biblical writers thought that the people whose behaviour they were condemning were opposite-sex attracted by nature, because everyone was opposite-sex attracted by nature. But once we know that same-sex orientation occurs naturally in some people, because they are born that way, then they would be acting contrary to their nature to have sexual relations with someone of the opposite sex. They would be leaving, giving up, or exchanging their natural sexual orientation for one that's unnatural to them. And because the Bible, and Paul in particular, argues from nature, what we now know to be natural is relevant here. The original logic would have to be applied consistently to what we know about people's sexuality today. So in the last few minutes, I just want to quickly run through what the traditionalists say gay people need to do if they want to be fully involved in the life of the church in the same way that heterosexuals can be. Just so that you can make up your own mind on the reasonableness of that in the light of what we've looked at these past two weeks. Now to start with, traditionalists don't believe in orientation. They deny that any gay person is born that way by nature. Now, they tend to keep that fairly quiet because just about everyone who knows gay people, especially if they've known them from childhood, would say that's ridiculous. At the very least, they say it's unproven. They question the science of the past 150 years, which they really have to to hold the position that they do. They subscribe to the ancient worldview that It's all down to personal choice. Or that it's caused by things like childhood abuse, a domineering mother, an absentee father, boys being dressed as girls or girls dressed as boys when they were little. Or other reasons to do with nurture rather than nature. They believe that homosexuality is caused by things that can be healed or cured. And they will quote formerly gay people's testimonies as proof of that. The traditionalist view is set out in a book written by the man that I quoted last week called People to be Loved. Now the book starts well enough because of course they are people to be loved. Although it does make you wonder why that needs to be said in the first place. Isn't everyone a person to be loved? Anyway, it soon becomes clear that this love on offer has an agenda, that the clock is ticking for those gay people to see the error of their ways. Traditionalists' expectations of them, once they've been loved and welcomed in, 
are as follows. And just to be clear before I tell you what those are, anyone who recommends this book to people is agreeing with these expectations. Number one is to have conversion therapy, which involves repentance, prayer for healing, and asking the power of the Holy Spirit to change your sexuality. Uh, The traditionalists say this works, and they tell stories of how it works. But clinical studies have repeatedly shown that it doesn't work. And some Christians have gone about this abusively, which is why the government is now proposing to make it illegal, which the Evangelical Alliance and others are fighting. Option number two is an opposite-sex marriage to someone you're not sexually attracted to and just make the best of it, presumably on the basis that it might help the cure. How do you think that will make their opposite-sex spouse feel? And then option number three, and this is the traditionalist preferred route for gay people, which again they back up with positive testimonies of gay Christians who are doing that, is to commit to a life of celibacy and singleness as part of the cost of loving and serving Jesus. Now, of course, there's nothing at all wrong with someone freely choosing that. After all, Jesus did and the Apostle Paul did. And, of course, some people find themselves in that position through no fault of their own. The problem comes when it's being imposed on someone for dogmatic reasons. In fact, imposed on a whole category of people just because they're born gay. So these options are the good news for gay people, according to the traditionalists, because of what the Bible says, or as they like to put it, what the Bible clearly teaches. Even though there are no Bible passages that even remotely suggest conversion therapy or singleness being compulsory for anyone. So this is the traditionalist extrapolation of what they think God wants of gay people, that they've decided on God's behalf. Each of us has to decide, in the light of what we now know, whether the demands of the traditionalist towards gay people are fair, kind and proportionate. The question is not what the Bible says, but what it was and wasn't talking about when it said it, for the reasons that it said it. In the light of what the biblical writers knew and didn't know about human sexuality, and in the light of the abusive and depraved contexts in which same-sex behaviour, same-sex activity was happening in their world. We have to decide whether those contexts bear any relationship to the gay people that we know today. Traditionalists believe that because of what the Bible says and what church tradition says, homosexuals are guilty as charged. But is that really where the evidence leads us? Is that really proven biblically beyond a reasonable doubt? Traditionists say, all you revisionists need to do is to find just one Bible verse that affirms same-sex relationships. 
then we'll gladly change our position. Which sounds very fair and open-minded. Sounds like it's upholding the authority of Scripture. But they know full well that no such verses exist. Because the Bible was answering different questions. And if we ask the wrong question of the Bible, we'll get the wrong answer. Traditionalists say that we find the answer to our question in those famous five verses. But maybe instead we find it in some of the other 31,000 verses. And especially the 4,000 verses in the Gospels that tell the story of Jesus. The Jesus who is the exact image of God, who perfectly shows us who God is and what God is like. Because ultimately the question is not what five verses seem to say, and especially not what the traditional assumptions say. But what do we believe the God who gave us the Bible has to say? How does he think and feel about gay people? For which I would suggest to you, Jesus the Son is our window into the heart and mind of God. We always have to remember that this is not some academic debate about the minutiae of Christian doctrine and being good evangelicals holding a party line against creeping liberalism. It's people we're talking about here, real people who God loves and who I think he wants to thrive in life. People who want to love and be loved in the same way that heterosexual people want to love and be loved. People who want to love and serve God in his church in the same way that heterosexual people want to love and serve God in his church. People for whom our opinion, the side of the line that we come down on, has real life consequences. If this comes down to making judgment calls, then maybe I can close by suggesting my own alternative famous five verses. In the same way as you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Love does no harm to a neighbour. Therefore, love is the fulfilment of the law. If you really keep the royal law found in scripture, love your neighbour as yourself, you are doing right. Therefore, let us please stop passing judgment on one another. Paul didn't say, please, I added that. If he'd been British, I'm sure that he would have done. (laughs) Instead, he says, make up your mind not to put any stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. And so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It seems a a very appropriate way to finish these two talks to leave you with, the Bible says. Wow. Thank you, Steve, for two amazing, amazing talks and for spending so much time in preparing diligently for us.
Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact us about this talk, to hear more or to find out about Riverside Church Whitstable, then visit our website at riversideuk.org. Also, you can contact us through our Facebook page or tweet us at Whit Riverside.